founders. Welcome back to the Zero to 5,000 podcast, where we obsess over the convergence of human potential and business results. Today, our hosts, Drew McClure and Jordan Mitchell, have another insightful conversation for you. So let's jump right in. All right, welcome back, my friends. Today, I'm sitting down with Jeremy Harper, the founder and CEO of Unity Group a private equity firm specializing in helping entrepreneurs grow their small to medium enterprises. He is an expert in mergers and acquisitions for SMEs, having bought and sold over 50 firms, as well as advised on more than 200 deals. Through Unity Group, Jeremy is pioneering a new business model called the agglomeration. This model enables entrepreneurs to continue running their businesses as before, but benefit from shared liquidity and the scale of being part of a larger group. Jeremy is also the founder of the Harbor Club, an invite-only program that teaches entrepreneurs, investors, and executives how to buy and sell businesses for no capital upfront or without debt. He has coached multinational organizational leaders, including those from Microsoft, Moore Stevens, KPMG, and Tesco, on the best strategies to acquire small businesses. So, many ventures and experiences, and here to share is my friend Jeremy. So, Jeremy, thank you for being here. Hi. Yeah. Thank you for uh, inviting me along. Yes, sir. So we took our stab at your story and understanding what you do, but in your own words, how did this whole thing get started? Yeah. So uh, look, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm not a a banker or anything like that. So uh, I I don't think um, entrepreneurs typically get exposed to mergers and acquisitions. Um, I think, uh, you know, when you're running a small business, you think there are kind of three levers that you can control, which is your team and your sales and your marketing. Uh, and I think, um, you know, most people grow a business that ultimately plateaus at some sort of level. It gets harder and harder to move the dial uh, when you get to a certain size. And I think that's the point when you should consider mergers and acquisitions. I think that's the point when you should move from, you know, customer value creation, which is the kind of startup journey, the shareholder value creation, which is the kind of uh, the, the next rung on the entrepreneurial ladder. So, you know, the challenge I often set people is to look at their calendar for the last week and look at all the meetings they had and pigeonhole them into were they shareholder value meetings or were they customer value meetings? So was it dealing with staff and customers or was it joint ventures, mergers, acquisitions or exits? Because if you can shift your calendar to meetings that involve joint ventures, mergers, acquisitions, or exits, then you're, you, you tend to find you're adding tons of shareholder value to the business and creating, you know, ultimately creating wealth. And I think um, you know, entrepreneurs are creative problem solvers. And the first problem most people are trying to solve is their own wealth. <laughs> so. Absolutely. So when did, when did this first become a, an interest to you? Were you running your own business yeah, so, at that plateau? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I, um, I was running a telecoms company in the 1990s. And um, uh, in the 1990s was when mobile phones got small. Um, and uh, and the uh, fixed line telephony markets were being deregulated around the world. So there was this sudden explosion in um, mobile phone and telecoms businesses in general. So, you know, pretty much uh, you know, like your taxi driver now is talking about crypto. Um, your taxi driver back then was <laughs> was selling mobile phones or was thinking about getting into the mobile phone business. So, um, uh, yeah, basically it, it became incredibly fragmented, hundreds of thousands of these small companies. And then as often happens in these industries that get very fragmented, they then start to consolidate um, and they eat each other uh, and, and, and create sort of um, clusters of these businesses to, to, to get scale. Um, and so as an entrepreneur, I found myself sitting on the other side of the desk from people that were trying to buy my company. And I had quite a few of these meetings. Um, and I realized they all had one thing in common. They didn't have any money. Uh, and, uh, and so I figured, shit, I haven't got any money either. Maybe I should be the buyer, <laughs> not the seller. Um, and so ran around and met with a few telecom companies, found a motivated seller, uh, managed to somehow cobble a deal together. And I, I remember, you know, I'm literally was absolutely flat broke at the time. I had a choice of paying my credit card bill or my staff at the end of the month. So there was no way I could, you know, pony up cash and buy a, I couldn't even hire a lawyer to buy this company. So ended up doing just like a letter um, between the buyer and the seller, which we both signed um, as the agreement to, to buy this uh, business. And um, anyway, we, we bought the company and we uh, grew by a year's worth of sales in an afternoon. And it was like a, a penny dropped. It was, um, 
you know, I've been living in this, this universe of, uh, of, you know, team sales and marketing. And suddenly somebody had peeled back the curtain and there was this whole other world behind it, which was a way to double your business overnight without uh, risking capital. And it was a complete game changer. I did another deal two weeks after that. And I did uh, 11 deals in the, in the 18 months following that first uh, transaction. And um, we grew from a million, million and a half pounds, like a couple of million dollars, basically revenue uh, a year to 13.5 million uh, in revenue in 18 months. Um, so that's getting on for like 20 million US. Um, and this is 20 years ago. So uh, back when yeah. 20 million was a lot of money. <laughs> so. All right. So you, you don't have two pennies to rub together or two pounds to rub together. And yet you were able to yeah. pull off not only one, but up to 13 deals. How did you logistically make that work? Yeah, so look, I, I won't, I, I won't um, sugarcoat it. The, the only thing worse than running one shit business is running 12 shit businesses. <laughs> to be honest, so it's incredibly stressful, um, which is where the kind of second epiphany came, which is you don't make money running businesses, you make money when you sell them. Um, and so selling my first business was the, was the real catalyst to, to wealth. It was the capital event that kind of changed everything. Um, but, uh, but yeah, leading up to that, I, I, I lived in this world of empire building. I just wanted to accumulate and I figured, you know, if I took a bit of uh, a salary from each one, you know, I'd, uh, I'd have this, uh, I'd be able to create wealth that way. Well, you know, the bigger your salary gets, the more you spend, uh, you live in a nicer house, you have a faster car, you have, uh, you know, better holidays. Um, uh, but you don't really create any wealth. You know, no, there's no one in the Forbes list that, where it says, you know, source of wealth saving. Um, it, it doesn't work. Right? So you kind of have to, um, yeah, you have to create those capital events in order to really uh, get that, you know, get that momentum uh, in, your, in your sort of wealth creation journey. And I think far too many people, I think, look at businesses a bit like, um, you know, the traditional work and retirement model, which is I'll do this all my life and then sell it at the end. Well, First time you sell it, you'll probably screw a few things up. So better to get that out of the way, get some experience and, and sell a few of them uh, and, and get good at selling them. Um, so um, yeah, that was the that, that was the epiphany. I mean, um, but yeah, during that empire building phase, it was just a question of uh, identifying companies where I could create value or add value um, and, uh, and picking them up uh, uh, and adding them to sort of my portfolio. But um, I think entrepreneurs, we always overestimate our own kind of skills and abilities. So we, we seem to think that we have endless amounts of time, whereas in fact, we don't really. Um, of course, we, we fit it all in, but we fit it all in often at the sacrifice of our personal lives, our health and fitness, um, you know, a, a whole bunch of other things. And so uh, there's, a, there's a tipping point or a breaking point where you just can't do that anymore and you have to, uh, you have to change direction. And that's pretty, what, pretty much what happened to me. Um, you know, I, I got sick of the, uh, the day-to-day -day operational side of things and, uh, yeah, started focusing on capital. So in a way, um, just became a bit more selfish and actually that, that kind of paid off. Knowing what you know now, if you could go back, what would you do differently in those, those first deals? Well, yeah, it's always, it's always tricky, isn't it? Because, you know, it's like that sliding doors movie do you get on the train or not get on the train you know so that, so i am the sum total of all my mistakes um so i wouldn't want to change any of that <laughs> so uh because yeah, because of the you know the learnings and insight i guess one of the things you know uh i would change is i would exit sooner the best time to sell your business is right now um how many businesses disappeared because of the pandemic how many will disappear because of the current uh recession inflation uh kind of challenges that are going on uh how many disappeared before the global financial crisis how many disappeared you know uh, at other times so um creating that capital uh when you sell a business you know you you not only get the capital you get all your time back um and uh when you have time and money you know that for an, for an entrepreneur they're the two things that you never have um and so uh you know you can become quite dangerous i've seen the you know buy, buy a porsche get divorced become an alcoholic type uh, route. Um, but then I've also seen, you know, them, them go on and create, um, uh, you know, tremendous uh, uh, things afterwards. So I think the, the lesson would have been sell earlier um, and uh, yeah, get into the buying and selling of companies. Um, uh, yeah, a little bit sooner in the journey would have been uh, good, good for the wealth. Yeah. Are there any things that we could look at if we're business owners that would signal it's time to get interested in acquiring other businesses or it's time to get interested in selling? 
yeah, look, you should always be ready to sell. Um, so you should always have your business prepared to sell. Um, so, you know, have a data room with all of the information in, be actively courting potential uh, buyers. It's just a good habit to be in. Um, and if somebody makes you the right offer and if it all stacks up, then, you know, creating that capital event, um, uh, you know, is, is game-changing, life-changing, whatever you want. Uh, most people don't want to sell because they think next year is going to be their best year ever. Very hard to find an entrepreneur that doesn't believe next year is going to be the best year ever. It's kind of part of the DNA. Um, but the fact that next year is going to be the best year ever is exactly what the buyer wants to hear. Um, so don't you know? Don't be afraid, don't let that hold you back. Um, you can also even link your exit to next year's performance. So you can take an amount of money now, which is what the business is worth. And a percentage of next year's growth, um, if you do pull off the growth you're expected to, it's called an earnout. It's quite a common mechanism in a in a transaction. So, um, you know, it, it's uh, it's a great way of then effectively, um, you know, uh, getting the capital event now and also capitalizing on it in the future if it is indeed as successful as you uh, as you hope it will be. And, and let's face it, as entrepreneurs, we also know that um, we're we're rarely right. <laughs> so next year might in fact not be the <laughs> best year ever. Might just be another year, um, and we only have a few of those on this planet. So uh, best not to uh, use them all up. Um, yeah, does that answer the question? Yeah, yeah, it, it answers it on the on the seller side. When when does it uh, make sense for you to be thinking? Maybe uh, that's it's not yeah, yeah. Apologies, I've forgotten the. I'd actually forgotten the question. Um, <laughs> so the. Uh, uh, yeah, look, any anytime. Um, so look, there, are, there are kind of two types of acquisition that I generally think about. There's a sort of bolt-on or a tactical acquisition, which could be a competitor that's failing and you're just going to take their customers on board, which is a great way of growing your uh, customer base. Um, or it might be that they have a product, a service, or a key talented person that you want to, um, uh, that you want to acquire. So they're, they're kind of you know, you should be doing a few of those every year anyway, um, or certainly be on the look lookout for those sorts of deals uh, all the time. And then there's the kind of strategic ones. So the game changers, the ones that, you know, perhaps uh, would be more centered around the consolidation of your industry. So doing a roll up of, of the companies in your sector or, um, you know, uh, the, the, the big move the dial type um, uh, transactions. Maybe it's a, a big merger before you sell or a big merger before you go public. Um, to create additional um, scale. So, you know, it's always a good idea to be, like, like I say, have your, have your calendar packed with joint ventures, mergers, acquisitions, and exit meetings. Um, so, you know, be constantly uh, looking in those areas. I love that. Um, let me ask you this. So my wife is in real estate. And one of the mm. things you find is that there's things you can do before you sell your house that increases the value yeah. of your house, right? So you're thinking... Yeah. All right. If I just make sure the yard is looking good and presentable, and I if I spend money on this, it's really not going to raise the value of my home. But if I spend money on this, it will raise the value of my home. So there's some some thinking around how to make it, you know, increase in value before you list it. Does that yep. apply to your business? If you're thinking in the next year or two, I'd like to sell. What things should we be doing to increase the value of our business when that time comes? Yeah, absolutely. And look, there's there's lots of different things. I mean, um, optics is a is a good one. So you know, not having all those personal expenses going through the accounts, or if you you know if you do for tax reasons, having a segregated set of accounts which excludes those, um, then uh, actually income recognition and cost recognition. So again, most companies recognise their income or recognise their costs. It's called the accounting treatment. Um, uh, in the most tax efficient manner. Well, perhaps you want to also present those numbers in the most profit efficient uh, manner. Um, uh, and so that uh, you're, you're displaying more uh, profitability from the same numbers effectively. Um, then there's uh, having that data room. So if you just Google due diligence questionnaire, you'll find about 5,000 different due diligence questionnaires online. Pick one and uh, go through it yourself in your own business and create a Dropbox with all of those components. Uh, populated. Um, that's uh, it's a useful exercise to go through anyway, but it'll also make you look super organized if you do start dealing with a buyer that you can get them under NDA and share that information with them very quickly. Um, that creates a bit of the how you do anything is how you do everything feeling. You know, the, the, this idea where you go to the restaurant and check the toilets before you uh, sit down for a meal, <laughs> because if the toilets are clean, the chances are the kitchen is too. Um, so it's that kind of uh, feeling with the business to make, you know, make sure that uh, yeah, everything kind of looks organized from the outside. 
And then look, there's fundamental drivers of value in businesses. Um, you know, when we when you talk about things like the price earnings ratio, that's the multiple of your earnings that you you trade at. Um, there, there's three big drivers for uh, increasing the price earnings ratio. Um, one of them is risk. So if you can de-risk the transaction, you can increase the, uh, the the value. So things like recurring revenue, contracted revenue, um, you know, businesses that aren't only as good as their last month's sales figures, um, you know, all of those kind of things reduce the the risk to a potential um, uh, purchaser. Um, scale is a big driver of value. So as a business gets bigger, what happens is there is a wider audience of potential people that can buy them. Um, so you know, if you're 500 million uh 500 million uh enterprise value um you've got Berkshire Hathaway and a thousand PE companies that can uh, uh that, that can buy you um and as you get smaller that audience also gets smaller and so um you know basic supply and demand when there's more demand the price goes up so um uh so yeah appealing to a wider list of buyers basically increases the, the price earnings ratio so scale is a big driver scale can be achieved through acquisition so you can you know a big company is 20 small companies put together so you can uh, you can you can achieve scale in that way and the final one is liquidity so liquidity is the ability uh to get your money back out of an investment uh quickly so that might be either the company's incredibly cash generative and therefore can issue uh dividends uh, but the more common way people see liquidity is either by public listing so that the shares are tradable on a recognized uh stock stock exchange um, that adds a liquidity premium to the valuation um, or, uh, yeah, or again, being a big company, um, there's more buyers, therefore it's more liquid. Um, so, um, yeah, they're, they're the kind of drivers of value. Yeah, that's super helpful. Uh, I, I want to take a quick tangent because I loved how you were talking about the learning curve you went on in generating wealth and the mistakes maybe made early on. Let's, let's imagine a scenario where you do have a cash out moment. And for the first time, you've got a lot of time back and you might even have a you know, sizable amount of money you haven't had before in the bank. What mm -hmm. wisdom would you give that person? What, what should we not do with that time and money and what should we do? Yeah, well, what I did was I bought a boat. Um, <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> and it's always needed repairs. There's a bit, there's a bit of me that says you shouldn't do that, and another bit of me that remembers how much fun it was. So I, I'm, I'm kind of torn um, uh, on that one, but, but realistically, you shouldn't. Um, the other thing that I see people do is pile that money into a startup, and uh, and that's a disaster. I, I don't invest in startups. I've, uh, you know, it's uh, startups are the Russian roulette of fucking investing. It's really. <laughs> Only there's five bullets in the only there's five bullets in the chamber. So five times out of six, you get shot in the face. Um, so, um, uh, so the uh, yeah, and and also particularly if you've built a business bootstrapped and then you got to a certain size and then you've sold it, you don't necessarily want to go back to bootstrapped because it's a horrible existence. So you pile loads of money into it at the beginning, and then of course that's just wasted money because the first three years of any uh any new business is pretty um you know horrific in terms of uh you know cash flow and general um teething challenges and things like that so yeah don't do startups um in fact i wouldn't even use the money to go and buy companies i would invest the money in the most boring asset classes you can find like real estate bonds stocks um derivatives you know options contracts those kind of things uh, I, I love um income investing so nearly everything I buy generates uh, uh, income. So my bank manager says my portfolio looks like I'm an 80 year old man um, because you know retired people tend to have that kind of profile for, for investing. Um, and um, yeah, ba basically uh, then go out and buy a company, but buy a company without using cash and without borrowing money from banks would be the uh, advice I would give. That's exactly where I wanted to go next. The thing that was, mm -hmm obviously uh, very curious to me when researching you and what your your business does is that idea of being able to buy companies with no cash or debt. How mm -hmm. does that work? Yeah, look, there's 15 different ways, literally 15 different ways that I, <laughs> that I go through on the, on, on the Harbour Club. Um, and, uh, you know, some of them are a bit more sophisticated. Some of them are a bit more simple. Um, I'll give you one really simple one, which works right now that, you know, your listeners, I think could, could easily uh, jump onto. So imagine, you know, 40% of businesses are owned by baby boomers. Um, they're looking to transition out of their businesses over the next uh, few years. 
and there simply aren't enough buyers for them. Um, it's it's very much a buyer's market, um, so the buyer has most of the power um, in the uh, in the negotiation. Um, there are not obvious buyers for a lot of these, um, I, I guess, boring uh, types of you know businesses that actually do stuff and generate cash. Everybody wants a marijuana company or a blockchain company or something that's going to get them get them laid when they talk about it in a bar. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> The local uh, air conditioning company or, or elevator engineering business just doesn't do that. Um, and so, um, uh, yeah, there's a load of these businesses that are available. Now, look, if you went up to one of those company owners and you said, hey, look, I'd like you to give me your business and I'm going to pay you over the next five years, they'd probably tell you to go take a hike. You know, what, why, why should I do that? Um, however, if you said to them, look, your business right now is not in a sellable state. Um, you don't have your um, due diligence checklist put together. You know, you don't have a data room. You haven't prepared your accounts in a way a buyer is going to want to see them. Your website is from the 1970s before they had websites. Um, you're, you know, you don't have, um, you know, the, the online presence isn't right. This isn't right. That isn't right. Blah, 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 blah. How about I come and do a consulting project for you for six months? Um, you pay me whatever it is, $2,000, $5,000 a month for the consulting project. And if I can achieve X, Y, and Z, and that might be an increase in their profit or in their cash flow or in their valuation using a valuation tool. There are lots of online valuation tools you can do, so you can do a before and after. Um, and, uh, you know, if I, if I can create that additional value, then I have 10, 15, 20% of your company. Um, and then I will help you sell the company. We'll go out and sell it uh, together. Um, and, uh, uh, and you basically do that. You do your six month exercise with them. You create a load of value in the business and you become a 20% shareholder in their business. You can now turn around that business owner and say, look, I'll tell you what, we can go and find somebody to buy this in the open market, but why don't I buy it from you? And I'll just pay you over the next five years from the, from the company's profits. Um, and at that point, you are the safe pair of hands, the trusted partner. You've done all your due diligence because you've been in the business and you've created incredible rapport with that owner because um, what you've done is something uh, very rare, which is you said you'd, you'll do something and then you've done it. Um, and that puts you in the top 1% of humanity because nobody fucking delivers. <laughs> you know, if, you, <laughs> if you've actually done it, um, you're, yeah. you know, yeah, you're, you're uh, the star, the, the, uh, the numero uno in the whole situation. So, um, yeah, that's, we call that WIBO, work in, buy out. It's a really straightforward strategy. We even have our own native valuation tool that we use in the Harbour Club community for, for doing the before and after valuations on the, on the company to show the value that we're uh, creating for them. So it becomes a real no-brainer to give us the equity um, in the business. Um, and um, yeah, it, it's a great way of acquiring profitable, well-run, well-established, you know, good quality businesses um, without using any cash or any debt from banks. Well, that's what I was going to ask. Obviously, you're not targeting a business that's shit for profit or tanking, but yet it's got to have room for improvement that you are able to come in and, and generate more value, right? Exactly. And um, yeah, every business has room for improvement. Otherwise, they'd be Apple. Yeah. Yeah. So what would, what would motivate you to buy them out versus taking that 20% that you just earned and helping them go sell it? Yeah, either works. I mean, uh, yeah, if you want, if you want to, if you want to own the company, then you buy it out, and if you want to just create a small capital event, then you can, uh, you know, you can do that. So, mm. uh, yeah, exit and get a, uh, yeah, get a percentage. It reminds me of this person that I, I follow on TikTok, where her whole shtick, I guess, is buy, what she calls buying boring businesses. That yeah, very similar to you, what you're talking about. That they're often the most profitable yeah. and consistent and steady. Um, is that a similar philosophy that you, that you would? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we very much focus on, yeah, um, traditional, uh, type, uh, businesses. I mean, li literally the last company I bought in the U S actually was literally a sausage factory. Um, they made <laughs> sausages, uh, which is, which is great. Um, the most recent transaction was an education, uh, business in, um, uh, like vocational training. Uh, so we've done probably. 10 11 vocational training businesses in the last year and a half or so um yeah but anything from construction to um, interior fit outs to um a caravan motorhome company um yeah lo loads of different things i love it i love it because it it just sparks uh, creativity in my thinking around it 
where we're again you're traditionally thinking about what's hot right now and how do i get into yeah. that and instead of going hey there's yeah, so I see, that aren't yeah, going I see, to I see, need construction and they need all these other things that that's not going to change yeah i see very talented people um uh very talented smart people who never really create any wealth for themselves because they're always going down that latest rabbit hole you know and it's like um uh, you know, they're, they're, it's like you're pushing a hill, you're pushing a rock up a hill and you have to get to the top of the hill before the rock gathers its inertia and flies down the other side. And all these people just push it up the first third of the hill and then go to the next hill and then the next hill and the next hill and the next hill because they're trying to jump on, you know, fuck it's NFTs now. And before it was, you know, uh, crypto and before that it was, you know, apps and before that it was something, you know, and they're always jumping on the next uh, hottest thing, hoping to capitalize uh, uh, on it. And um, yeah, then, you know, never really master anything. What's uh, at this stage of your kind of career in life, what motivates you the most? Um, I'm quite lifestyle driven. So I like to do, you know, I, I, um, uh, I like to invest in experiences, travel, um, you know, and things like that. So I, I try not to let my work interfere with the, with the lifestyle uh, too much, which is great for a deal maker. If you're an entrepreneur, a traditional entrepreneur you're kind of stuck in your business and you can't uh, really escape um whereas as a as a deal maker deal making is kind of feast or famine you're super fucking busy or you have nothing to do um and so uh yeah it frees you up to do all sorts of things i just spent we, we listed a company uh, we took the company public in um in paris um it's called cmg clean tech and it's a, a clean energy business hydrogen battery solar uh company we listed on the paris uh Euronext. so last week um I had meetings on Friday in Paris, um, stayed at the beautiful Shangri-La Hotel with the Eiffel Tower on a money shop right on the uh, terrace. And um, then we went down to Versailles. Um, you might be familiar with the Palace of Versailles. It's like this amazing uh, place. And we went to the Royal Versailles Ball, um, which is like a huge, wow. um, yeah, like uh, you dress up as a penguin and they do all these funny dances and shit. It was, uh, but it was really, it was really, really cool. I mean, what a breathtaking uh, venue. And we actually stayed in the grounds of the palace and uh yeah we were invited to the um british ambassador's residence as well for one of the evenings so always try and mix up those kind of business trips with some other kind of fun stuff uh, uh going on and um yeah try and try and maintain yeah a, an interesting lifestyle i have a young family as well seven-year-old and a five-year-old so it's great to be able to spend lots of time with them and my office is here uh in my house so uh i'm, I'm always at home so that's kind of nice as well do you find that that question important for people to be able to answer the meaning if i if i value a over b the business i'm leading or the even goal of what i'm doing may or may not be conducive to that right so i say i may want this but i've got this over here that's taking yeah i mean Human beings are often conflicted, aren't they? So they say they want one thing and they do something completely the opposite. Like um, I see people that would like to be wealthy, but they do nothing to increase their wealth. They don't measure their wealth. I mean, the first thing to make anything improve is to measure it. How you, you know, if you want to lose weight, you weigh yourself. Um, so it's, uh, um, but people who want to be wealthy and they don't have a personal balance sheet, they don't understand what's going on with their, uh, with their wealth. I see that, you know, really, uh, really commonly. And I always find it amusing when, uh, you know, I mean, I, I have lots of nice things. And um, so you get people who are very jealous of you having nice things. And they typically say that you're greedy or that you're all about the money. Um, and what's interesting is they're doing a job they fucking hate every day just for money. So they are literally the personification of being all about the money. Whereas I do things I really enjoy and I love and that improve my lifestyle. Um, but happen to also be lucrative. Um, and, uh, you know, so I, I think there's a, there, there is a real irony. Um, what is it? The, the French say, qui s'accuse, j'accuse, which is if you accuse me of something, it's because you're guilty of it yourself, you know? Um, like the, the person that says you're stealing money from the till is probably stealing money from the till. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I love that. Yeah, it's, it's been an ongoing process for me to actually get clear on what I want. And the mm -hmm. wherever yeah. I'm not clear on what I want, what I want, I end up being paralyzed or pulled in a lot of directions without much conviction. And then as soon mm -hmm. as I get crystal clear on what I want, it makes a lot of decisions easier for me. You know? Yeah, it does. It does change a lot as well. Um, yes. You know, uh, what you want now is not necessarily what you want before. I, I do find making lists of things really useful. So um, I always use these um, Mont Blanc notebooks, like these big 
notebooks. And every time I start a new one, the first page is generally filled with um, goals that are either a mixture of kind of material things and achievement type things or, and experiences and things like that. So I'll just make, and it'll be quite an exhaustive list, you know, like a hundred things maybe um, in there. And then I never look at it again, I ignore it. Um, and when I get to the end of the pad, I go back to the first page, you'll be amazed how many of those fucking things are ticked off. Because <laughs> it's just sown this little seed in your subconscious and you go, oh yeah, I did that. Oh, I did that one too. Oh, I'm that one. <laughs> um, wow. Uh, so you yeah, make it really, once and then you don't review it anymore. I never go back to it. Yeah, yeah. I, I wait until I get to the end of the notepad, which can be like nine months or six months or a year, depending depending how many notes I take, I guess. Um, but um, but it's that sort of amount of time. And wow. then you go back and you be yeah, you're just amazed how many of those things have uh, have disappeared you know, or been, you, been achieved or been done. Yeah. Have you always done that, or is that a, a newer no, thing? I guess I've done that for I've done that for a few years. Yeah. What are what are some other habits that you would say have positively impacted either your life or your business? Yeah, so look, habits are really important uh, for just about anything that you want to achieve. And I guess one of the uh, the blessings and a curse of my lifestyle, because I, I move around a lot. So we, we spend the summer in Europe and we're, uh, the winter in Dubai. Um, I used to live in Singapore for 12 years. But again, we used to do um, the summers back in Europe. Um, and uh, what tends to happen is when you get into a, a, a set of really productive habits, and then when you change geography, you change location, it, break, it, it breaks the habit because you're out of that environment, you're in a different uh, uh, environment. So that's great if you want to reset them, um, but it's also a great way of picking up some bad ones again. Um, so, you know, like um, you get into perhaps the, you know, midweek drinking or the uh, not going to the gym every morning and, and, and these kind of things become a little bit easier so um i guess one of the one of the good habits to try and get into is to reset your habits um you know consciously every so often so that um uh yeah you're you're um deliberately doing the the more productive things um but uh yeah i mean sleep exercise and good quality food is probably the best habits that you can get into and that's definitely do as I say, not as I do right now. The last uh, with that trip to Paris and Versailles, sure. um, that was ba yeah. Basically, I think um, I'm pretty yeah uh, embalmed in alcohol at the moment. I reckon. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love it. Okay, so I've heard this said before, and I'm, I'm curious if you agree or disagree or somewhere in between. But uh, someone has said that the difference often in in, in wealthy and and those that aren't is those that aren't buy a lot of stuff and those that are invest a lot of money in themselves that they see themselves yeah. as something they invest in and keep growing their expertise or their health or their knowledge uh how do you fall on that kind of thinking yeah look a hundred percent i mean um you know rich uh yeah rich people invest their money in, and poor people buy stuff um now the problem is you see rich people with stuff and you assume that you know you need to do that well the boat, the car, the plane, all of those things are are the opposite of wealth. They're not having the money anymore. Um, they're the things that you've bought with the money. So the, the, the key thing is, uh, I mean, yeah, certainly um, you don't know what you don't know. And so reading books, educating yourself and learning about uh, new stuff is, is incredibly uh, valuable. Um, but also, you know, I wouldn't, if you only have 20 grand left, don't stick it all on a Tony Robbins course or something, you know, you need to... <laughs> You need to balance these things out and, right. you know, absolutely, absolutely be investing in yourself, but absolutely be investing, period. You know, you want to be in um, and, and, you know, I, I talk a lot about this. Um, I call it escape velocity investing. So, you know, um, the Earth's gravitational pull, uh, uh, the Earth's gravitational pull means you need to uh, achieve escape velocity to get out into space. Um, it's a rocket science thing. Well, your gravitational pull is your is your spending. So what you spend your money on, so your lifestyle, everything like that, that means that you have to keep earning money in order to um, survive because of this gravitational pull. So your first focus should be to get your investments to pay your day-to-day -day expenses because as soon as your investments cover your day-to-day -day expenses, you get that escape velocity. So then instead of you know saving 10% of what you earn, you can invest 100% of what you earn because your investments are paying um, your day-to-day -day expenses. And... Um, I hate the uh, the fire principles. You know, uh, don't don't drink uh, Starbucks every day, and by the time you're a fucking 140, you'll have you know yeah. almost no money. It's, it's, 
fucking retarded. I can't understand why anybody would want to do that. So, yeah, um, uh, yeah again, a lifestyle-driven um, decision. So much better to focus on creating the capital events, which then have a material impact on your passive income. Um, and then your passive, once your passive income gets to the right uh, scale, then life just is off the leash and you can, uh, yeah, you can go and do great things. You think for some people, you know, when you were talking earlier about selling your business and then moving on to the next thing. Do you think some mm -hmm. people have called a limiting belief or fear and insecurity that what if this is my best idea? That yeah, I think uh, in, so. I'm going to yeah. ride this one out till I die, kind of thing. Yeah, you'll you'll grow out of it. <laughs> so, grow out of that idea or grow out of that business? Yeah, yeah. No, you grow you grow out of that idea. Um, I think you know that was definitely the way I looked at the world when I was young. I, I couldn't think that you you know every business you started, you wanted to take to like fifty to hundred million valuation before you would sell it. Um, actually, I would have been much better off taking like a half a million dollar exit or a, you know even a 300 grand exit at a very early stage in life now 300 grand properly deployed you know can generate enough of a salary um that you don't have to work not a fantastic lifestyle but kind of 30 40 grand a year um income stream um that means that you you now have so much more financial freedom that you can go on and do the, the next deal and the next deal uh, and and grow that further that's actually helpful to hear so you're not just we're not just talking about until you can get a $10 million, you know, buyout type of thing. Like, yeah, even, even just a yeah. six figure. Uh, yeah. For yeah. You. I, mean, that, my, I mean, like my first dozen exits were all in that six figure kind of range. Um, and uh, yeah, transformative. Wow. That's super helpful. Uh, are there any, before I move on to another question, are there any books in particular that you often recommend if someone's wanting to increase their, their knowledge around some of these subjects we're talking about? Yeah, so I mean, look, the problem with M&A books is that they tend to be focused around leverage buyout, which is kind of the traditional model uh, for doing acquisitions. Um, so, uh, I mean, look, if I'm, uh, I've, I've got a book, obviously, Go Do Deals, um, which breaks down my kind of way of, of, of doing stuff. Um, but I tend to read, um, a, yeah, a really kind of eclectic mix of, um, of different business books. I just read for Sam Zell, uh, book am i being too subtle i think it's called um and that I was a great book. He, he, uh, am i being too subtle i think it's called uh, ah. but it's sam sam zell z-e-l-l sam zell um it's his book um and that was a great book i love that um you know maverick deal maker um i think at one point he was the largest uh, real estate owner in in the u.s um ah. and uh yeah like a, a yeah just a fascinating story great book um love what he's love what he's achieved love what he's done um, nothing like what I do, but still great story, you know? Um, so yeah, I read, yeah, loads of stuff I'm reading. I can't remember what I'm reading at the moment. It's, um, it's about a hostile takeover of a casino and I can't, I can't remember which one. So, um, yeah. <laughs> I find that in common with many of the successful founders I, I interview is, is eclectic reading. There's obviously, yeah. a, here's my net, my lane and I'm, I'm researching that, but there's also a wide variety of just mm. general knowledge that is invaluable it seems yeah well i went down a rabbit hole of um books about um so winston churchill had this thing he called the um department of Un ungentlemanly warfare which basically became the sas and like counterintelligence and all of these kind of things um and i went down a rabbit hole of reading all the books about that in fact one of them has just come out um uh, at the cinema called operation mincemeat which was one of the books i read about 10 years ago Okay. Um, and uh, yeah, I went down this rabbit hole of reading those books. And again, um, whenever you're reading a book, you, you kind of solve problems in your own mind. And often those problems are around business deals or things that you're doing or whatever. So actually, I don't think the content of the book actually matters that much. It's what it does to your brain and the yeah. way you think um, that kind of can really help uh, answer questions for you. Absolutely. I, I read uh, The Splendid and the Vile. Have you read that by Eric Larson? No, I haven't. It's no. It's amazing. It basically uh, recounts almost chronologically, mean, is chronologically uh, the rise, I guess you'd say the rise, but the need of Winston Churchill uh, in the war as that was happening. And it pieces together letters from his secretary, from all these different people to give an account of almost moment by moment what really happened. And right. it was the most fascinating freaking story to get the inside track on his fears, his doubts, the decisions he made, you know all that kind of stuff. And it happened to be right before the pandemic, I was reading it. And again, 
don't know if I look back at the book, if it was that apples for apples, but it inspired a lot of the right thinking for me of how to handle the crisis of my business having half of its revenue gone overnight and us facing uncertain times. And I just remember thinking like, oh, this reminds me of Churchill when he had to be this instead of this and he had to think this way and get increased the speed of communication, right? Like that was one of the things yeah. that he had to do was we got to communicate faster. As the wars yeah. happen, we need to know immediately what's going on from the front line so I can make quick decisions. He started implementing rules about no, no fluff in their communications. He was like, yeah. we've got this poor habit of, you know, taking forever to explain this and politic. And he's like, I just need the bare facts in front of me as fast as possible so I can make a decision. And all of those things were just in my brain because I was reading this biography about him, you know? Yeah, yeah. So anyway, yeah, no, you might like it. What is it when, the, uh, when the student is ready, the teacher uh, appears, yeah. Right, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Um, man, I, I would just say before we move on to the lightning round questions, is there anything, whether in your work with the Harbor Club or with uh, your book and things like that, that you're particularly passionate about communicating to people like myself or other business people uh, that we haven't talked about yet? God, there's probably like a million things. I mean, I, I guess the, the big area that I'm passionate about is democratizing wealth to entrepreneurs. So, um, you know, it, it's actually very hard to become wealthy being an entrepreneur, and it's quite easy to become wealthy in the finance, investment, banking uh, kind of world. And we want more wealthy entrepreneurs and less wealthy bankers because entrepreneurs are change agents. They they are creative problem solvers. And when you solve the problem of them creating wealth, they go on and solve the biggest problems the world is facing. You know, if you look at the 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 um, the richest entrepreneurs in the world, they're also the most philanthropic. They're the ones that have got you know passion projects that they're now um, uh, embracing to solve problems. But we need we need more of that. We need yeah. to make more entrepreneurs uh, wealthy. And, and that was really the concept behind agglomeration was to make small business and investable asset class um, and attract global capital into small business. Because at the moment, if you look at the top 500 asset managers in the world, people, people always bang on about uh, the wealthy, you know, top 1% of America has more than the bottom 90%, blah, 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 blah. Actually, that's not the problem. The money is in um, wealth funds and, and uh, non, they're, they're not people, they never die. Uh, so it's things like the Harvard, the Harvard, uh, the Harvard Endowment Trust, the uh, sovereign wealth funds, the um, charities, churches, um, all of these kind of uh, things. The top 500 have $93 trillion uh, in them and they're incredibly diversified. They're in every asset class you can imagine. You can, there's a big pie chart that shows their allocations across all the asset classes. And you know all the usual suspects are in there, the real estate, the bonds, the stocks, um, and everything else. Um, but what's fascinating is that they have a larger allocation to Bitcoin than they do to small business. And then if you look at what small business is, I mean, you're in the US, small businesses in the US are 50% of economic output, so 50% yeah. of GDP and then 90% of the private sector workforce. So if you don't work for the government, there's a nine out of 10 chance you work for a small business. Um, and so, uh, so what you've got is an economy over here with all the money in it, and an economy over here with all the people in it. <laughs> They're completely disconnected. And so my passion is about how do we get that institutional capital to have a fair allocation to what represents 50% of economic output. So you know, how do we get them to invest into small businesses? And, and the way we're tackling this is through agglomeration. So the reason they don't invest in small businesses is because they're risky, they go bust all the time. They lack scale, um, so they can't deploy much money into a, a small business. Um, and they're completely illiquid. You stick your money and you can never get it out uh, again. And so by creating these agglomerations, we create portfolios of small businesses. Um, and so we've got a, a narrow portfolio approach, so it's less risky. We have the scale because it's a bunch of small companies make one big company and we've got the liquidity that people can buy and sell on the public markets and therefore uh you know can invest in and divest in the same day so um yeah that, that's my kind of passion project is is creating uh that wealth we we um published a report in 2020 we will do one for 2021 as well um where we just did an analysis of the how many millionaires we've made um, now, not everybody wants to share the information on their deals, but the ones that we did get to share, I think it was 34 people and a total of $77 million um, wow. in exits in, in 2020 as well, which was a challenging year <laughs> for, for anything. 
Um, uh, so um, yeah, we're, we're really passionate about creating as many of those uh, seven figure um, people as possible uh, that can then hopefully go on and solve the problems in their own uh, cities, towns, villages, whatever. I'm very glad I asked that question. That is, that's an exciting, <laughs> that's an exciting answer. And you educated me on how the world works. So yeah, that's cool. awesome. Uh, all right, let's get to the lightning round questions and I'll let you get back to your day. I know it's the end of the day there in Dubai. Yeah, uh, it's dark here, yeah. So question number one, uh, typically I would say if you could ingrain one message into your entire organization, what would it be? But I, I want to change this one for you. If you could just ingrain one message to the average person, like a billboard that we had to drive by every day, what would that mm -hmm. billboard say? Yeah, that's a really good uh that's a really good question. I think um, travel more. Mm. Travel is a great educator. Um, yeah. Makes people a lot more tolerant of other cultures. Um, uh, enriches your life experience. I take my kids all over the world. Um, so yeah, I think everybody should travel more. I'm probably butchering this, but I think it was Mark Twain or somebody smart like that that had made that connection between traveling and if you travel, there's no racists, you know? Um, yeah, yeah. It's only when you're stuck in your little town, your little village forever that that, that seems to grow. So I love Yeah, that. yeah, you get that fear of the outsider. Yeah. Yeah. All right, question number two. What's the single best advice you've ever gotten about growing your business? And also, what was the worst? Um, I've had loads of terrible advice over the year. Everyone's got, what is it they say? Opinions are like assholes. Everybody's got one. Um, so, uh, yeah, the, the, the terrible advice is too, too numerous to mention. Um, the... The best advice, ah. I mean, actually, it's probably something not business related. It was probably to um, open a private banking account, private wealth banking account. Um, and uh, I just didn't really, I, you know, you've heard of private banking and you kind of just assume it's just another banking solution. But actually, there are different things available to rich people um, than are available to um, ordinary people uh, when it comes to investments, what you can do with your investments, how you can leverage your investments and, and all of that sort of stuff. And that, that was a real game changer uh, for me was getting on that private banking ladder. Um, and it was just something I just didn't know existed. And then suddenly I did. Uh, that was probably about 12 years ago now I discovered it and it, it, it was game changing in terms of my own wealth. Cool. I still didn't know it existed. I'll have to check that out. There we go. <laughs> All right, question number three. What causes you the most stress or worry leading your organization? Um, well, I, the, I quite often get faced with periods of overwhelm. Um, so I think I mentioned to you before, we had, like the doing deals is feast or famine. And uh, so, and like everything in life, the best deals always pop up at the worst moment. So, um, you know, when you're really, really busy with five other things, the best thing comes along. And, um, uh, and I, I've, I've definitely had that a lot more in the last six months than I have probably at any other stage in my career. Um, and of course, when you're overwhelmed, you tend to let people down. You tend not to return the calls you said you were going to return, send back the forms you're supposed to send back. And, you know, Things start to slip through the cracks a little bit when you get um, uh, when you get overwhelmed, and I've probably been a little bit guilty of that um, uh, in in recent times. Um, but like I say, it's it's intense for a period of time, and then you'll find you know like literally you can have a Monday where you can barely breathe, and then Tuesday nothing to do, um, <laughs> literally nothing to do. Wow. So uh, yeah, it it is a little bit like that. It's like a set of waves. Right. They come yeah. in, they come in sets. They, it's usually not just one wave, it's three or four, and then it's calm for exactly. a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Like it. All right. So number four is what's your BHAG, your big hairy audacious goal? And you can take that in whatever way you want. Yeah, I think um I, I would like to solve global inequality with uh by, by democratizing wealth. I think um I think there are three key areas to focus on with that. There's the entrepreneurship one, which I've kind of touched on. How do we make entrepreneurs wealthy? I think there's an education one, which is why are some of the richest countries in the world having to have food banks because people can't manage their money. So I think there's a big education aspect to, uh, you know, wealth and, and money that needs to happen. You know, the poorest people are also the most abused when it comes to gambling, you know, lotteries, um, uh, addictive habits, um, you know, 
stupid payday loans, you know, stupid shit like that that uh, uh, they shouldn't be doing. So, yeah, education is a big one, and um, just the eradication of poverty. So there are still pockets of absolute poverty in the world that shouldn't exist when there is so much abundance. Um, and I'm not going all kind of communist on you. I'm, I'm saying that there must be uh, ways of creating enterprise yeah. in those places and, uh, and, and getting people uh, uh, more self-sufficient. Love it. All right, question number five is a creative question. So if you could hop into a DeLorean, go back to your past and tell yourself just one thing, when would you go back and what message would you deliver to the younger version of you? Ah, interesting one. Um, God. Yeah, I'd probably go back to like my 15-year-old uh, self because I left school when I was 15 to, to run a business that I'd already started uh, when I was about 13. Um, and uh, I'd probably go and tell myself to um, go and acquire some companies. <laughs> so, <laughs> so instead of starting more, start buying some. Wow. Okay, so first, we should have, we should have gotten into that. We don't have time for it now, but first business at 13. That's, that's incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think my first entrepreneurial endeavor was about seven years old when I cut all the flowers down in my parents' garden and put them in jam jars and sat on the street trying to sell them. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, Jerry, this has been a, a fantastic and certainly enlightening conversation. I have learned so much from you. And if people want to learn more, uh, connect with what you're doing, where should we send our audience? Yeah, so you can go to jeremyharbour.com. Um, it's spelled the British way of spelling harbour, so it's A-J-R-B-O-U-R. We stick an extra U in there just to be difficult. Um, and, uh, but yeah, jeremyharbour.com. Uh, on there, there's an offer uh, to get my book. So you can buy my book and you get a free 21-day email sequence, um, which takes you through the process of identifying, sourcing, and acquiring a company. Um, and uh, lots of people have said that it's really good content. There's tons, tons of stuff in there uh, for free. Um, that's yeah, a great way. I know obviously all the usual social uh, channels, so you know Instagram, Twitter, and all those things. Um, uh, often posting awesome. where I am, what I'm up to, stuff on there. Awesome. Go check it out. And Jeremy, thank you again for being here, my friend. Awesome. Thank you for having me. Founders, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and hop into our monthly founder email so we can ensure you stay on the edge of peak performance and massive business results.